So our handout tonight is this uh, legal size piece of paper, and we'll be on the timeline side of the uh, of the handout uh, for the rest of the uh, evening. And it's going to be more of a history lesson than Bible study to learn about the Reformation. We're coming up on that October 31st when the church celebrates the Reformation. And uh, Steve asked me to, to talk about that a little bit. And uh, I want to walk you through that timeline. So it's chock full of information. And I'll expound on it a little bit as, as we go. Uh, but first, I'd like to turn to uh, Romans 1.16. This is uh, probably the only time we'll look at the scripture for a second. And Romans, we'll start with Romans 16, but Romans 17 is kind of what... Uh, uh, is the nucleus to the Reformation as far as Luther was concerned. He wasn't saved when he put his 95 Thesis on the door to, uh, October 30th or 31st. Uh, he wasn't saved yet, but he, he knew indulgences were wrong. The corruption in the church we'll talk about in a second. Uh, but he came to faith after that. And, you know, God was obviously working in his heart and, uh, and saved him. And... Seven, verse 17 is what really got to Luther. So uh, we'll start with 16, though. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, and it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. That was, it took, Luther a long time to work that through his head and for God to open his eyes to understand its righteousness by faith because he was trying to feel comfortable in the works righteousness system of the Catholic Church at the time. He did everything that uh, to the to the letter of the law of the righteousness uh, works that the Catholic Church has set out. He was doing confession every day for every bit of minutia in his daily life to his priest. <laughs> and he, the, the priests were getting tired of hearing his confession every day. You know, he made his tr pilgrimage to Rome. He, he, you know, looked at the relics. He's doing all the sacraments. But there was no comfort in his heart. He didn't feel comfortable. And just so, you know, in the... In the time of, of the Jews, you know, which uh, at Jesus's time, which was a works righteousness system too, you know, this does come from the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2.4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within me, but the righteous will live by faith. So it's not just a New Testament teaching, you know, uh, it's always been by faith. And... Uh, I just wanted to remind us all of that as we get into uh, to this. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your revealed word that you have told us what we need to know. Your, your scripture is authoritative, it's sufficient, and it's essential. For without you and your word, we would not have the faith that we have in your word. And we thank you for your saving grace, your mercy on our souls, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, I was talking about the Catholic Church and the apostasy of the, of the Catholic Church. And, you know, I talked a little bit that on Wednesday night about apostasy. And apostasy is turning away from the revealed word of God if you've been revealed full knowledge. If you have full knowledge of, of God's word and you reject it, that's apostasy. You're walking away. You're rejecting Christ. You've, you've been told about Christ's saving power. You've been told about his miracles. You've been told about and you've read his word of God. And some people, you know, are in the church for years and then all of a sudden they disappear. They walk away from it. Uh, so that's what apostasy is. And, and a church can be apostate. The Jewish church at the time of Jesus was an apostate church. They've turned away from the faith and turned it into a works righteousness system. And for a thousand years, that's what happened to the Catholic Church. They turned it from, you know, by faith to you have to earn your faith. Instead of faith by Christ, you have to earn your faith. 
And there's no assurance in, in the app because you never know if you've worked hard enough. So you have no comfort, no assurance that when you die, you would go to heaven in, in that works righteousness system. And the apostasy of the Catholic Church, you know, I don't know if this is all of it, but this is some of it. In AD 431, the proclamation that infant baptism regenerates the soul. In AD 500, the mass instituted the reenactment of the sacrifice of Jesus. So every day, the Catholic Church is re-sacrificing Christ when they do the, uh, do the mass. Uh, in AD 1000, attendance of mass was made mandatory under penalty of mortal sin. You know, if you're a, a church that's become corrupted and you depend on the offerings of the people sitting in the pews and they're not coming to church, you're not getting the money. So, well, let's just make it mandatory for them to come to church. Otherwise, they're going to die and go to hell. So you better come to church. And then also in AD 1000, the rosary, repetitious praying with the beads, was invented by Peter the Hermit. Uh, in 1079, remember that, 1079, about around 1000 AD. Uh, this is not in your notes. Uh, celibacy of the priesthood was decreed, decreed by Pope Gregory VII, or VIII, I'm sorry. So now, uh, before that, the priests were allowed to marry, now they're not. AD 1090, the granting of indulgences, indulgences was started to reduce your time in purgatory. And by the way, you never knew how much you had to give to get out of purgatory. No one could ever tell you how long purgatory was or how much it took to get out of purgatory. But wow, it, you know, what a safety net. Well, if I screwed up in this life, I still got purgatory to purge my sins. Uh, you know, it, but, you know, there's no biblical uh, references to any of these things that we're talking about. Uh, A.D. 1215, transubstantiation proclaimed and confessions of sins instituted by Pope Innocent III. Transubstantiation is the wafer turning in the actual blood and body of Christ when you're taking communion. And of course, Jesus says, just do this in remembrance of me. It's, not, it's a symbol, as Steve always reminds us when we're doing communion. So that's been part of the Catholic religion since 1215 A.D. 1438, purgatory was finally elevated from doctrine to dogma at the Council of Florence. Uh, in 1545, tradition claimed equal with the Bible by the Council of Trent. Now, 1545, that's after the Reformation. This was part of the Counter-Reformation. And, uh, of course, the Catholic Church didn't call it the Reformation. They called it the Great Divorce. Uh, but so they said, okay, let's get our heads together. How are we going to counter this Reformation or this divorce? How are we going to win these people or how are we going to get them back? And this was one of the things they said, well, they're saying all this stuff isn't biblical that for the last thousand years. Let's make it, you know, tradition equal with the Bible. And man said it. Not, the, not God. And it didn't stop there, but some of the things in more recent history, 1854, uh, now we've got the Immaculate Conception of Mary proclaimed by Pope Pius IX. In 1870, the infallibility of the Pope proclaimed by the Vatican Council. 1922, Virgin Mary proclaimed co-redeemer with Jesus by Pope Benedict XV. In 1950, the Assumption of Mary into Heaven, proclaimed by Pope Pius XII. You know, she didn't die. She went. She was. She ascended to heaven. Uh, and and now we have more churches in the Catholic Church named after Mary than Jesus Christ. Uh, it's uh, it's an amazing how Mariology has taken over the church. So as I mentioned, indulgences was one of the things that launched the Reformation. The the corruption of indulgences. And I just wanted to give you some uh, taste of what that was and what it, how it worked. It was in 1316, a license for committing sins was written down, and back then it had to be handwritten. We didn't have the printing press yet. was circulated by Pope John XXII. 
1514, it was first published on the printing press. So now we're almost up to the Reformation, 1517, was published by Pope Leo X, who was the Pope at the time of Luther. And in 1846, there was an English version printed. So these quotes will come from the English version in 1846. And if you want to put it in today's dollars, how much it costs to get forgiven of your sins multiplied by 30. So for $1.50, this is the cheapest thing on this list. It's multiplied by 30, you know, about $45. You can have your sin forgiven for procuring an abortion. Everything else that I'm going to talk about costs more money, but an abortion was the cheapest thing to get forgiven for, for just $1.50. seventy-five for killing a layman. $2 for perjury, $2 for forgery, $2 for lying, and $2 for ravishing a virgin. $2.25 for robbing a church. Simony, that's the act of selling church offices and roles or sacred things. Uh, and it was named after Simon Magnus in Acts, who wanted to buy from Peter, you know, the miracles that he saw Peter and Paul doing. And of course, as you know, Peter rebuked him. And priests, and another $2.25 for a priest to keep a concubine. You know, they make rules to take care of themselves, too. Uh, remember $1.75 or $1.50 for an abortion? $2.50 for killing, killing any other relative, but not a baby in the womb. $2.75 for burning a house, eating meat and lint, or $2.75 for robbery. $5 for for fortification with a nun. $10, marrying on a day forbidden, or $10 for adultery committed by a priest with nuns and others. And if you want to go all out and get every sin paid for, $12. At times 30, that would be $360. Yeah, $360 in today's dollars. That's how the church made its money with indulgences. And that's what was happening in Luther's time. This guy named Tetzel coming to Germany. They're trying to raise a lot of money for the uh, building of St. Peter's Basilica. And he was telling people, if you drop your money in there, you'll free a dead relative out of purgatory, you know, trying to get more money and milk the, the, the poor people, the peasants out of their money. There were a lot of things hidden that people didn't know about the church at that time. At the time, there were over 100,000 prostitutes in the employee of the church. And it was universally accepted based on Augustine's proclamation of prostitution as a necessary evil. And if you're gonna tell the priests they gotta be celibate, well, great, they can have a prostitute. I mean, just an unbelievable evil. Why would someone admit to a crime to pay these licenses fees for, for forgiveness? Why even bother? Well, the church was all powerful. The kings and queens bowed down to the Pope in Europe. And if they were up for murder and they paid their indulgence, the government couldn't go after them. So they were free from the government as well. So, yeah, I'm going to go to the church, pay my $1.75 for killing a layman, and the government can't do anything to me. Pope Julius, who was the pope before Pope Leo 1503 to 1515, granted an indulgence to the future Pope Leo X, 1515 to 1521. Now, remember, 1079, popes were, or priests were supposed to be celibate. He got an indulgence who was married and had two children. They didn't follow their own rules. Erasmus, I don't know if you remember as we were studying the Bible history, he's the first one to publish the English, I mean the uh, Greek and Latin 
side by side so we can see how good the Latin Vulgate was translated relative from the original Greek for the New Testament. And Erasmus is the one to do that. And he was a Catholic and he was not a Protestant. He wasn't part of the Reformation, but he did do this work. You know, God can use everybody to, to, to help move his agenda forward. Most people didn't know he was an illegitimate son of a priest. You could also pay your indulgences in advance. Hey, I'm going to go kill somebody. Here's here's a dollar seventy-five, and then you. Uh, Julius and Leo declared the holy wars to justify the mass slaughter of the Jews, in order to steal their money and possessions to finance the building of the Vatican, primarily the Sistine Chapel and Saint Peter's Basilica. And Pope Leo X revealed his true feelings when he said, "How profitable the fable of Christ is." That has been good to us, the fable of Christ. He didn't, he wasn't, was obviously a Christian. Uh, so that's from the religious point of view, from the Catholic point of view, what was going on. And if we look at the secular view, what was going on uh, for the Reformation, and the, the top lines here, that the purple lines that go across the top. It was a time of war and pestilence. I mean, we had the, uh, the Black Death, the plague. 75 to 200 million people died during this time. And the people were looking to the church for answers. Why all this death and plague uh, on Europe? And I was just reading the town of Oxford for an example. In a five-year period, it went from a population of 50,000 to 3,500. Can you imagine that devastation today in a community like that? COVID was nothing compared to this. Uh, you woke up with a fever, you were buried that night. I mean, there was just, it just happened. You had no warning, you woke up sick, you died that night. Um, there was the Hundred Year War there in the, on the left at the top uh, between France and England. Then there was the War of the, of the Roses, uh, and that's when the Tudors, like, King Henry uh, won the control of the throne of England. And then this sweating sickness, this was another one where you die within 24 hours. And this was mostly in England. And this was the time of John Wycliffe when he was going out. And, and uh, even in this time frame, they and his followers were out preaching the word in English and uh, ignoring uh, any precautions for themselves just to get the word out to people that were dying so they would have uh, the, the faith that they needed to be saved. Uh, then you can see later uh, the Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Spanish War, the 30-year war. So we got disease and sicknesses and wars going on all over. I, didn't, I don't think I put the Peasants' War on here. This was a revolt by the peasants. That was another thing that, that also happened. So that kind of frames the, the time frame. And this has been what's known from about 500 AD to 1500 AD, the Dark Ages. And you can see it's dark from the secular point of view, but it's also dark from the spiritual point of view as well. Uh, what's known as the Dark Ages. And, uh, you know, we don't understand God's timing, but we know he was in control and decided this was the time. Uh, there was some... Light glimmering before that, 1517, John Wycliffe, which we talked about there on the left, uh, uh, in the, in the left-hand corner up here. Uh, and he wrote the first New Testament, uh, or he did the New Testament in 1378. Uh, and then he did finished with the Old Testament later. Uh, so that's the first time the English people had the word in the, in the English language. Uh, his... One of his students, Jan Hus, uh, supported Wycliffe's teachings, but he was burned at the stake in 1536 for doing that. He, and he went back to his home country after coming up and learning from John Wycliffe in the Czechoslovakia area of uh, Eastern Europe. So the church was burning its heretics at the stake at this point in time. And then uh, you see Jan Hollens Gutenberg there. He invents the printing press in 1450 uh, with movable type. 
uh, want to go down at, at around uh, right here in the in, kind of in the middle, just before Luther, uh, the fall of Constantinople. That was a very important part of God's plan. So the Muslims are taking over uh, Constantinople, which was the capital of the Eastern, the Greek Orthodox Church. And it was the Ottoman Empire expanding their boundaries. And the refugees are moving to Italy with Greek manuscripts. And now the stranglehold that the Catholic Church had on Latin only uh, was being broken by the Greek manuscripts coming in. And now we have the the original language that the Bible was written in for the New Testament. And then you see below that Thomas Lineker. Uh, he was in England. And after reading the Gospels in Greek and comparing it to the Latin Vulgate, he wrote in his diary, either this original Greek is not the Gospel or we are not Christians. The eyes were opening up when you started reading the original Greek. That's always why it's good for a translation not to translate from a translation, but to always, if, if you want to put it in this language, translate it from the original language. Don't take an English Bible and try and translate it into some other language. Take that some other language and translate it from the Greek. And that way you get a more accurate rendering for each language. And that's what Luther did for German, and that's what Tyndale did for English. They both went to Erasmus's Greek New Testament. Uh, the impact of Erasmus, Greek, Latin, parallel, New Testament Bible over here on the left-hand left column. Uh, the, 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 about the third paragraph. The year before, Lu oh, no, the paragraph before that. Luther explains that, oh, I guess right from the beginning of that. <laughs> because of Lineker and Cola, Erasmus was so moved to correct the corrupt Latin Vulgate, the only Bible allowed by Rome with his own fresh rendering of the text uh, from the more accurate and reliable Greek. Luther explains that the word repent in the Latin Vulgate was translated as, I'm not going to know, panitentinium agite, which means, or translated as, go do penance, not repent. So everywhere that in the Latin Vulgate where we today see repent, the, the, the Catholic Bible said, go and do penance. And that supports indulgences because that's how you do penance. The year before, Luther had a copy of Erasmus's Greek test and he saw that the Greek word for repentance was metanola in the original Greek. It's not even close to the idea of what was in the Latin Bible. So Luther and Tyndale got it right. It's repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe in the gospel. And that's not a suggestion. That's a command from our Lord. Repent. And these are the things that are illuminating the people that influenced the Reformation. Below Thomas Lineker, where we talked about him reading the Greek uh, and, and saying we're not a Christian, is another Englishman, John Collette. And I'm sure I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name. When I was in the British Library, uh, they, uh, I'm sorry, the British Museum of Portraits, they had those two guys hanging on the wall as, as portraits, but they didn't have William Tyndale on the wall, which I was I was shocked because they own this painting that we have in our lobby from the from that museum. Colette taught from the Greek into English, and this tells you how thirsty the people were at Oxford and later preached in London illegally, because this was illegal in English, at St. Paul's Cathedral. 20,000 people per week were showing up and 20,000 people were standing outside to hear the word preached in their own language. Because they go to a mass, they hear everything in Latin. They're, they don't know Latin. The common man didn't know Latin. So here they can hear it. And, and the reason he got away from it, his dad was the mayor of London. So uh, he, he was able to get away with that. So. God works his ways one way or another to get the word out. So, uh, but what this was a battle about, and I talked about Luther and uh, uh, righteousness uh, comes by faith. 
I just want to remind you what the order of salvation is. And this comes from uh, John MacArthur and uh, Mayhew's uh, uh, Systematic Theology book. Some of you have that book, uh, and I highly recommend it if you want to study systematic theology. This is written for non-theologians, you know, like us, to to understand systematic theology. You know, there's different ways of studying the Bible, you know, verse by verse, systematically, uh, uh, topical, uh, and chronological uh, are, are some ways you can in study the Bible. And the order of salvation, I'll just, this is not in your notes either, but uh, foreknowledge comes first, or predestination or election, where God chooses us unto salvation. And as we know, as we read, it's before the foundations of the earth were created that God elected us. The number two is effectual call or regeneration, the new birth. Number three then comes our conversion, repentance, and faith. Number four comes our justification. We're declared to be right as a legal standing in front of God. Number five, we're adopted into God's family. Six, sanctification. After we're saved, we become more Christ-like and our progress better be in the right direction. And then, of course, perseverance, remaining in Christ. And then finally, glorification, when we receive our, our glorified bodies, our resurrected bodies. Now, step through five, steps two through five, effectual call, conversion, justification, and adoption. Even though I, I put them in order, and that's kind of the order they happen, but they almost happen simultaneously. I mean, you know, as soon as you realize you're called, you're converted, you're justified, and you're adopted. But it has, logically, it has to kind of go in that order. So you could say, you're predestined, you're called and saved, then you're sanctified, and you persevere, and then you get your resurrected body. Now there on the far right-hand side, I have the five solas in a box on the right-hand side. This wasn't actually formalized till the 19th and 20th centuries, but it, it is the principles that was taught during the Reformation. And the first three were pretty much recognized and known as sola scriptura, you know, by scripture alone. And the reason they said that, by scripture alone, because in the Catholic Church it was plus the Pope and plus, plus the magisterium. That's what the Pope said and the magisterium said was as elevated as scripture. It wasn't by scripture alone. If the Pope said it, we have to believe it. If the magisterium said it, we believe it. We're the only true interpreters of the Bible. People sitting in the pews were not part of the church and they were not allowed to interpret the Bible. They were actually not allowed to read the Bible. It all was handed down and you had to believe them that they were interpreting the Bible right. Sola fide, by faith alone, versus keeping the law, the sacraments, and good works. So it was by faith alone plus. You know, I mean, it was by faith plus, not faith alone in the Catholic Church. You had to, you had to keep the law. You had to do the sacraments. You can go to Mass, you know, uh, uh, get married, all those things, and good works. Sola gratia, by grace alone, plus merited works by doing good works and calling on the merits we'll see here of other people in a second. Solo Christus or solo Christo, Christ alone or through Christ alone versus the Roman Catholic Church. You could only be saved if you were in the Catholic Church. That was the only way you could be saved as far as the Roman Catholic Church was concerned. In Soli de Gloria, the, the Gloria, glory to God alone, Plus Mary and the canonized saints uh, get the glory too. You know, it's not Christ, uh, glory, uh, God alone. It's God plus Mary plus the canonized saints. Uh, so what I just said about the Catholic Church back then is still true today. Nothing's changed. The, the church did not, the Catholic Church did not reform. 
So you, that's why we're called Protestants. We, we basically protested and left the Catholic Church, you could say, as, as Protestants. And uh, I like this one quote from Spurgeon. Christ must be in every sermon. He must be top and bottom to all theology that is preached. Uh, we, we can't forget that. So over, over time, you know, everyone in the, uh, these names that we'll, we'll go over some of these in a few minutes uh, are trying to understand all this and understand the corruption and how much had been twisted. You know, so the word repent was, you know, uh, do penance instead of repent. Uh, Mary full of grace, that's not what it says in the Bible. In the it says that in the Latin, but not in the English. Uh, John 3.15, where it says he will crush the head and the devil will crush the foot. Or I don't know what crush was the right word, but paraphrasing. Well, in the Latin Vulgate, it says she will crush the head. So Mariology creeped in right in Genesis 3.15. So there was all in the same thing with the Lord's Supper, with the transubstantiation. They changed the wording of the Lord's Supper. Uh, so the Latin Vulgate had become corrupted over those thousand years of the Dark Ages. And then there's this guy named uh, Jacob, Jacob Arnabus, Arminus, Arminius, I'm not sure I got it pronounced right, but 1560 to 1609, this isn't in your notes either. Uh, he petitioned the Dutch Reformed Church to revise five doctrines found in the Belgic Confession of Faith. And uh, you see these confessions of faith down here by the churches, down here in the bottom, you'll see the Belgic conversion, uh, Confession, the Heidelberg Confession, or Catechism, the Canons of Dort, which we'll talk about in just, which we're getting ready to talk about, uh, and the London Baptist Confession of Faith and the Westminster Confession of Faith. So you can see the timelines when these things happen uh, in the church as they're finally getting a grasp around what the Bible is really telling us. And this was a good way for people to get, you could say, a condensed version of what are we supposed to believe in. And the, the Westminster Confession of Faith, when it first came out, they didn't have biblical references. And someone said, we should have biblical references to all these things. And they did do that because it was all biblically uh, sound uh, doctrine that they put in there. Uh, so this Canons of Dort is what it was called because uh, in 1619, they called, the, they called all these people together. Okay, we have to refute what uh, Arminius is saying. Uh, and the people that followed him were called Arminians. Ar it was, it's called Arminianism. Uh, and uh, there were 62 Dutch delegates, 27 foreign delegates, representing eight countries that convened for this. And it took them two years to, go, to work this all through. Uh, and it was pages and pages uh, of where there are Arminians saying, no, it should be this way, it should be that way. But at the final day, the canons were thoroughly rejected, and it was called the Remonstrance of 1610 when they submitted this, and scripturally set forth the sovereignty of God of the Reformed doctrine on these debated points. So they rejected everything that Arminians wanted, and they didn't want to make it part of the Belgian church. In all, the canons contained 59 articles of exposition and 34 repudiations of error. And Arminianism is still alive today. You know, and if you look there at the uh, Arminianism on the left-hand side, is over here in another box, the Canons of Dort, 1619. We know that as doctrines of grace today is the way it's been the shorthanded. And some people know it as tulip because the first letter of each one spells tulips if you put it in that letter. And I, I think I put them that way. So total depravity or total inability is the first doctrine of grace versus what the Arminians said, free will and human ability. Yeah. Uh, you can make the choice if you want to be saved. Uh, it's your ability that saves you. And they don't believe that, you know, everybody's good. You know, uh, they don't believe that everybody's bad and uh, that we don't have the, and, and 
total inability. We, we just can't do it first. They didn't believe in that. Unconditional election versus conditional election. And you can see that'll go along with pers perseverance of the saints in number five, that you can fall from grace. That's why they say uh, election is conditional, because you could fall away, which is opposite of what the doctrines of grace say. And what did Jesus Christ do for us? His atonement was limited to those he, he predestined to save. It wasn't for everybody. And, of course, the Armenians are, are, were preaching universal redemption or general atonement. It was for everybody. So well, why did Christ die for the people that aren't going to go? You know, it, it, it doesn't make any logical sense. Or another way of saying particular redemption. He, he particularly redempted uh, the people that he wanted to save. Irresistible grace. The efficacious call of the Spirit. You can't resist him when God calls you. Whenever God decides to call you, he's going to open your eyes and, and you can't resist him. And they're saying the Holy Spirit can be effectually resisted. And then perseverance of the saints versus falling from the grace, which we, we, which we already touched on. So those are the things that the Reformation people had to combat. Not only the Catholic religion, but also people that are Protestants saying, well, you know, I don't think you got the Bible quite right yet. And so they're, they're correcting people. They're having consuls trying to get this theology all together. A lot of people criticize uh, about uh, the, the thoughts on Revelation at the time of the to, to read these books. So in the case of William Tyndale, the parable of the wicked mammon. But he wrote many more books that are equally as good. I just put down a couple samples of each one. Uh, John Calvin, obviously, uh, wrote a lot, but he's most famous for the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And that's what was used to help uh, refute the Arminians. And that's why it's sometimes not only known as the doctrines of grace, it, the doctrines of grace, but it's sometimes known as the uh, five points of Calvinism. And, uh, you know, I, I met a preacher once. And he says, well, I'm only 4.5. What's the point five you don't agree with, and why? <laughs> you know? I never got an answer. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's it's pretty amazing sometimes uh, what people think they believe or, or whatever. Uh, one one name that you may have not heard, you'll hear me talk about it actually next month when we talk about the, the Geneva Bible. Will William Whittingham there in the kind of in the middle in the green. Uh, he, the, the New Testament came out first in 1557 uh, before the completed uh, one. And he was, I think his wife was related to John Calvin. Somehow he was, I think, an in-law to John Calvin. But uh, obviously a, a Christian and working hard to, to bring us the Bible in the English language. And I'll talk more about why that's such a special Bible uh, next, next month. Uh, John Fox there down below. So during this time in Geneva, Geneva was a Christian theocracy. John Calvin ran the town. He was invited by the town to run the town. At first, they kicked him out, and then things got really bad morally. Crime went up. They says, can you come back? You know, And he came back and started uh, running the, the, the city. So Geneva was... Uh, and I think I might have put it under here. Uh, John Knox, now I don't see it, but he's saying this is the first, this is the first city since the time of the apostles where this is as close as you can get to what heaven will be like or words to that effect. You know, he, he just, it was such a, a, a great time. This was the time that Queen Mary is ruling in England and persecuting everybody and hanging them, uh, uh, burning them at the stake, the, the martyrs. And uh, so there, so the a lot of these people are Englishmen, William Whittingham, down there in Geneva under the protection of John Calvin, working to, uh, to get the new Bible, the Geneva Bible to us. And then John Fox, who was down there, you know, he's really, he's helping and he's preaching and John Calvin says, you know, that's just not really your gift. 
And he says, why don't you write about the martyrs? <laughs> and that's what he did. And he became famous for the Book of Martyrs uh, shortcut. He says, I didn't write about the Book of Martyrs. I wrote about the acts and the monuments of the Christians. And the first edition came out in 1563. And before he died, the fourth edition came out. And that tradition had been carried out in about the 1680s. Uh, and uh, the completed one is 3,000 pages long, 11 by 17 pages, double-sided, obviously, uh, documenting all the martyrs from the apostles or St. Stephen all the way up through uh, uh, about the 1800s, getting through the Spanish Inquisition and things like that. It was such uh, a terrible time. And then you see some of the other writers in the, in, to the right of John Fox there. Uh, John Milton, who wrote Paradise Lost uh, and Paradise Regained. Uh, John Elliott above there. We'll talk about that when we get to uh, English Bibles printed in America. But uh, the first printed Bible printed in America was actually in a native in Indian language, the Algonquin Indian language, 1663. It wasn't an English Bible. It was first printed in the United States. In fact, the next Bible printed after that was a German Bible before the English Bible was printed in, in America. Uh, we, we, we talked about Pilgrim's Progress and the Men's Breakfast uh, one Sunday uh, by John Bunyan. It's an allegory. It's the second most popular book after the Bible in those times. The third most popular book after that was Institutes of Religion by John Calvin. And the next one was John Fox's Book of Martyrs. Those four books were your library if you had the wherewithal to, to get those books. Those are the books you wanted. Uh, some famous people, we talked about Archbishop Thomas Cramer, Cramner last Sunday. Uh, he uh, was burned at the stake, as we said, by, by Queen Mary in 1556. But he wrote the Book of Common Prayer that's uh, still used today in the Anglican Church in 1549. Um, if we go to the right there, uh, we see John Owen. He was the Calvin of England. He was referred to as the Calvin of England. He wrote the death, I like the title of this, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Uh, and it's still a book that is worth reading. Uh, he wrote it in 1647. Uh, On the Mortification of Sin is another one. Jeremiah Burroughs is somebody that we don't hear a lot of his name, but he wrote some very important books, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, which Paul talks about in Philippians 1648. He wrote that. The Evil of Evils and the Exceeding Sinfulness of Sin. And boy, are we seeing that today, the exceeding sinful, sinfulness of sin. You know, my wife and I, we watch Dateline every once in a while, and I just, it's just amazing how exceedingly sinful people can be. It's just amazing how many spouses kill their spouse after 35 years of marriage for money. It's, it's just, it's like, I, uh, so, uh, you know, it's, uh, Romans 1 is, uh, is, is so true. Uh, Romans 1, 18 on for the rest of the chapter, taught us how sinful man is. Now, if you think it was all glorious under King Henry VIII, uh, so you'll see him just above that Protestant Reformation box in the red there. It's half red and half orangish color or pinkish color. And the reason that it's split in color is when uh, the split in color, the first half or the first two thirds of his reign, he was a Catholic, and the last third of his reign he created the Anglican Church and would be kind of considered Protestant. And I would say kind of considered, all it did was instead of the Pope, it's now King Henry's in charge. Uh, but during his time under the Catholic, he burnt 60 Protestants to the state. So we talk about Queen Mary, but she did 283, but he did 60. You know, so he was pretty brutal. Uh, and as you know, his... He divorced his first wife. He beheaded a couple. Uh, you know, he had wife problems. Uh, I think six, wife, six wives he went through he, looking for a, a, uh, a male heir. And, of course, he didn't have the science to know he was the one that was at fault because he carries the DNA for male, not the mother. So it's, it's not the mother's fault that their, 
that she's given birth to. Uh, uh, a lot of those women did give births to males, but they uh, died at, uh, they were stillborn or, or died in the first week or two of life. I mean, it was, it was a tough time. I mean, you know, being a mother and being pregnant didn't guarantee you were going to have a, a healthy newborn in those days. Henry did write in defense of the seven sacraments in, uh, for the Pope. In 1521, and Pope Leo X bestowed on him the title Defender of the Faith. It was so well written that King Henry into defending the, the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. And that title, Defender of the Faith, was retained when he left, and he still was called the Defender of the Faith. And when King Charles just got coronated, part of his title is Defender of the Faith. They still have that. He's the head of the Anglican Church and defender of the faith of the Church of England. Uh, we talked about Queen Mary. Uh, besides the 284 protests, I said 283, 200 uh, protests that she burned at the stake. Uh, she had 30 of them that uh, lingered in prison and died. Uh, now, underneath those names, King Henry and Queen Mary's name, you start seeing some things that are, are going on. The first act of supremacy. Uh, which says that, of course, King Henry is the head of the church and, the, and uh, we basically have a, a church state, you know, uh, under the Church of England, under the authority of the King of England. Uh, that was uh, in 1534 that started the Anglican Church. Uh, after King Henry, King Edward I became king. He was a child king. He wasn't very old, I think 12 or 13 years old. Uh, and then he didn't live very long. He died in his 20s. Uh, a lady named Lady Jane Grey in 1593 became the queen for nine days. And uh, Queen Mary would have none of that. And she somehow pulled off a coup, uh, had her beheaded, and she became queen. And uh, uh, she was the daughter of King Henry's first wife. She hated her dad for divorcing his, his mother. Uh, going back up to Thomas Cranmer, he's the one that, no, it was Cromwell that orchestrated the, the I mentioned Sunday, the, the move to the Church of England so he could get his annulment for that first marriage because the Pope wouldn't give it to him. Uh, You see under, let's see, I want to find the second act of supremacy. I'll say the first act of uniformity is under King Henry, a couple lines down under King Henry. The first, I mean, uh, King Edward, uh, the first act of uniformity required you to attend the Church of England every week or be fined. So just mimicking what the Catholic Church did. You know, it wasn't, you can't, even today, it's hard to tell an Anglican service from a Catholic service. They're all dressed in the same priestly garb and going through the same motions. And it's really hard to tell the churches apart. And then to the right of that, you see the second act of supremacy that required an oath of supremacy to the monarch for public or church positions. If he didn't profess your faith to the, to the king or queen, uh, you couldn't have a job in the church or, or a public office. And then keeping going to the right of there is the second act of uniformity in 1662, the great ejection of 2,450 ministers were ejected from their pulpits. They were almost all Puritans. Oh, it's a very dark day in England. Am I, I'm going long, aren't I? Okay, we got to finish this up. That um, was a very dark day in England. And... Uh, they were forbid, you see it to the right, the Five Mile Act of 1665, three years later, the nonconformist ministers, they couldn't come within five miles of their, of their home or towns or pulpits. They also couldn't be buried in London. And there's a cemetery today, and I've been to it like four or five times now. It's just amazing. Uh, all the uh, thousands of people buried on top of each other over the years. Uh, layers on top of layers. This is where John Owen is buried. This is where Paul Bun uh, John, Bun John Bunyan is, is buried. Uh, this is uh, where Wysak Ott's 
Isaac. Isaac Watts is Barry. <laughs> uh, uh, John uh, Rippon, who was the pastor of the church for 61 years before Spurgeon took over. There was a couple uh, short-term pastors between those two. And he's the one that published the, the hymn book for the first time. We don't really know who wrote it. The Firm Foundation was in that hymn book, which we still sing today. We still sing part of Martin Luther's, Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That's the, some of the other thing the Reformation brought, music into the church. It, it wasn't in the Catholic Church. So the, the hymn, hymnology is part of the Reformation as well. So you can read the rest of that for yourselves. Uh, this kind of gives you an idea of what was going on and gives you a feel for uh, the challenges that these people had with persecution and getting the word out there and staying true to the word and, and being leaders uh, of, the, uh, of, the, of the church Protestant movement, if you will. And uh, uh, we have to uh, thank God that this happened because we went, might not be here today if this hadn't happened and, and have the word in our language or the German language or the French language, which Calvin did, uh, we, 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 we don't know where we would be today. So uh, we have to thank, if, and of course it's all in the Lord's timing. You know, he's sovereign. He's doing it under his plan of redemption for, the, for us. And, uh, and we're here still to preach the, the light, just like these guys did to the lost and dying world. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for shining that light in that time frame of the Reformation and bringing us back to you with the five solas, Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, glory to God alone. We praise you, and we ask you to, to look over our souls. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.